Again, my name is Ben. Um, as Dave mentioned, I am one of the elders here at Sedaris, uh, and I am really grateful for this opportunity to be able to come up here and preach to people in person, but also preach to people who are joining us online. Um, we're so glad you've been able to join us here in worship uh, and joining us today to learn more about the God who loves us there. Um, so many of you all know um, that we've been going through this series called Built Up there. We've been in it the last couple months there. Um, Really, the purpose behind it was to, as we saw kind of where we were at in our nation and our society, knowing that there was going to be a season, especially with the the political discord, of a lot of kind of tearing people down, we wanted to take the opportunity to look and say, hey, how does the gospel actually inspire us to build up? How does the work of Jesus Christ grow us there and let us go out and be those who build up the kingdom of God there? So we are going to continue in that series today. Um, And if you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 54. That's where we are going to spend a predominant amount of our time today is in that passage there. Um, And as you're turning there, I just want to start by opening in prayer there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and graciousness, Lord. Um, I thank you for every individual here um, and who is tuning in, uh, that they're in a place that you've led them to to consider your truth and consider uh, the good news uh, that we find from uh, the life and death and resurrection of your son, Lord. I pray for uh, my words today. Allow them to be anointed by your spirit. Allow them to be uh, spoken in truth. And Lord, allow any words that I may say that aren't based on your truth to fall on deaf ears. Uh, We thank you for all that you do in our lives. We thank you for your care and compassion. And most importantly, your gentleness today. We thank you for everything. In your name, amen. So I want to start by leaning into a common cliche of pastors and speakers when they're preaching and start by sharing a little bit about my son. My son, Arlo, he turns two next month, which is exciting, but it also means that we're at this kind of state in parenting that it's no longer just about keeping a child alive. That seemed to be what parenting was for really most of it so far there. But now he's starting to grow. He's starting to get more mobile. He's starting to talk. He's starting to show a little bit of more of his own will and his own personality. And with that means we have to actually start the aspect of parenting and instructing him how he should act there. And a lot of it is for his own well-being there, but a lot of it is for the well-being of others as well too. Um, He's learning. He's learning to be a person there. So, for example, one of his favorite things to do, it's kind of silly, is he loves to play with his mom's hair. So she'll be sitting on the couch, and he'll climb up onto it there, and he'll be flipping it around and tossing it everywhere, and it's kind of funny. Sometimes he'll grab a boat, and he'll pretend that his mom's hair is the ocean, and pretend that it's waves, and it's really adorable. Thinking of a two-year-old who's just saying, hey, look, I'm using my imagination. Mom's hair can be the ocean. It's fun, exciting. But for those of you who've ever interacted with toddlers, sometimes the play gets a little bit less playful. And inevitably, the playful tossing 
around of the hair turns to yanking and pulling. And what had started with laughter ends up with a lot of, ow, that hurts, Arlo, stop there. You see, what we have to teach Arlo in that moment is about gentleness. That, hey, Arlo, if you do that, you must be gentle. You don't want to hurt your mom. We see this instruction in Arlo happen as well in his toys. And even more so, his books. The kid loves to read. He loves the books. If, we, if you ever get him a new book, you have to read it like 27 times in a row. You've got to carve out like two hours in your schedule because he just wants to read it over and over again. But he also loves books especially that have pop-ups or flaps so that he can see what's underneath it. But as a toddler, just as with his mom's hair, that flipping often turns to yanking and pulling, which then leads to tears and folds and tears because his book has been ruined. So again, we have to teach him, Arlo, with this, be gentle. We want to see you be gentle because we, want, we don't want to see people get hurt and we don't want to see the things that we value be broken. And so when, when Dave asked, hey, can you be preaching this in this series? Think about what you can be teaching here. As I was looking at my life and thinking about where I'm at, this concept of gentleness just kept coming back into the forefront. And as I was reading through scripture and praying, and it just kept coming back into my mind of gentleness, the gentleness of Christ, the instructions of gentleness and the commands of gentleness throughout that we find throughout scripture. And so today, what we're actually going to look at is we're going to start by looking at the gentleness of Christ. And we're going to see what he has done and what his gentleness has actually accomplished there. And how through Christ's gentleness, we are then called to use gentleness in our own interactions and in our own lives to build up our communities and those around us there. So, uh, let's start by looking at this passage here in Matthew. And just a little bit of context as we're diving into it. What we are going to find is we're finding Jesus at the tail end of his life on earth. Specifically, we are finding him at the moment that he is arrested there. That he's, he's about to be taken eventually to the cross and his death. And this is the moment where his arrest happens. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 54 states, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 
So you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with gentleness? And where it comes in is actually how Jesus is interacting with the various individuals in this story. And there's three primary individuals that Jesus interacts with. And it's in these interactions that we see how Jesus exemplifies gentleness and what we can learn more what gentleness is and how we can live gently. We also see because of Jesus' choice to act gently, what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. And finally, what we'll see from there as we'll see how that leads us to live gently. So I want to today really break down these three interactions with three individuals. Specifically, Jesus interacts with his betrayer. He'll interact with his captor. And he'll interact with his defender. And in each of these interactions, we'll see something unique there. So let's start with the betrayer. Because it's the first person on the scene in this passage. It's a man named Judas. Now, for those who may not be familiar with the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, um, Jesus, when he started his ministry, gathered 12 individuals to be his disciples, to be those who would help participate in his ministry and learn from him and be his closest confidants and friends. And one of these 12 was this man named Judas, this man named Judas. And somewhere along the way, Judas's view of what Jesus' ministry should look like diverged from what Jesus' ministry actually was. And this dissatisfaction and disappointment grew and grew to the point where he realized, I want to do something about this. And he knew that Jesus' ministry was causing quite a bit of stir in Judah and Israel. And he knew that the religious leaders of the day were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. And so Judas decided, I can be that way for them to get rid of their problem. And so he agrees for 30 pieces of silver that he would lead um, the high priests and the soldiers to arrest Jesus in the midst of the night so that it could be done quietly, so it could be done discreetly. Because they knew that this arrest was fraudulent. There was no real basis for the arrest of Jesus. And yet, Judas agrees to betray his friend. And that's where we find this scene open up. Now the thing is, Jesus knows what's happening when Judas arrives. He knew that Judas had gone to betray him. And so he's not surprised when the soldiers arrive. He's not, a ro- he's not surprised when Judas is the one who's leading them. And you, if you would think, if you could put yourself in that situation, being someone who's done nothing wrong, and seeing one of your closest confidants turn their back on you to betray you, what would your response be? Anger? Disappointment? Disbelief? I mean, all of those would seem to be pretty rational and 
and reasonable responses to this scenario. And yet Matthew wants us to know as we read that's that that's not where Jesus' heart is at. And we see that in how Jesus actually greets Judas. In verse 50, I want you to look and see what is said. He says, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. That do what you came to do acknowledges that Jesus knows fully what is happening. Again, he's not surprised by the circumstances that they find themselves in. He knows that Judas is there to betray him and to turn him into the authorities. So that should give us a little pause and a little bit of surprise to the word that he greets Judas with, friend. Jesus isn't looking at Judas with anger. He's looking at him as his friend. He's chosen to respond in gentleness. And this word friend is actually something that is, is more, that has more depth than that. And it's something that we don't necessarily get when we read the, the, the Bible in English there. As you may know, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was actually written in Greek. The New Testament was there. And this is one of those moments where those translations that if we're just reading in English, we may actually miss out a little bit of what is actually happening. And if we miss that, we're actually going to miss further what the heart of Jesus is and ultimately what the heart of God is. Because this word friend is not the normal word for friend used through most of Scripture. The normal word that you see predominantly throughout Scripture is the word phylos. And it kind of gives that sense of what a friend is in our day and age. Someone you're really close to, someone you can count on, someone that you spend life with there, that you care about. But the word Matthew chooses to, to use here, and the word that Jesus chooses to use here, is hetairos. And we don't actually have a great translation for what that means. Friend is the closest, sometimes it might be companion or comrade. But to fully understand kind of what Jesus is actually trying to communicate here, the best way we can do that is by looking at how else it's used in Scripture. And that's actually really easy to do because it's only used three times throughout Scripture, all in the book of Matthew, all by Jesus. And so when we look at this word and when we look at what's happening here, we can get a better sense of what the heart of God is. Jesus uses this, this, this word twice leading up to this both in the instance of, of parables, and there's a, there's a commonality in the way that he uses it. So we first see Jesus use this in Matthew 20, when he shares of a parable of a landowner. And he's trying to describe what the kingdom of God is, and, it, and he describes it as a landowner who goes and, and looks out and sees that there's people out there who are in need of work. And so he goes and he agrees with them, hey, I've got some work you can, can come do. And I'll pay you this much. And these people are grateful. They're like, I've got work. I can go. I can feed my families. I can, I can do what I need to do. And so they start the day. And they work. And they work. And a few hours go by. And the landowner looks around and says, hey, there's some more people that need to work. Hey, why don't you come in and help? 
And so they come in, and they're grateful for this opportunity to come into work. And then again, a few hours go by, and the landowner sees, hey, there's more people out there looking for work. Let's bring them in. And finally, it gets to the last hour of the day, and the landowner still sees, hey, there's still more people who need work. Let's invite them in. And at the end of the day, the landowner tells his foreman, hey, let, let's, let's give everyone their due. Let's pay them. And he lines them up, and he starts with the people who just started in the last hour of the day, and he pays them one denarius. And he goes to the people who started a few hours earlier and pays them the same amount. And he goes to the people who started a few hours before that, and he pays them the same amount. And he finally gets to the people who started at the very beginning of the day, and he pays them the same amount, the amount that they had agreed upon, the amount that previously the people were, were grateful for. But by now, after seeing everyone else who had been a recipient of the graciousness of the landowner, they're embittered. They're like, why should they get the same amount? I've worked all day. And it's in the response of the landowner that we find this word friend. And he goes, friends, did we not agree to this? Why are you upset with my generosity that I've chosen to be generous to these other individuals? Why aren't you happy with what we agreed upon? They misunderstood the generosity of the landowner. And we see a similar instance in the next usage. A couple chapters later in Matthew 22, Jesus shares another parable trying to describe what the kingdom of God is like. And he says, it's like a king who is throwing a wedding feast for his son. And he describes, hey, I've sent out all these invitations and the, the feast is ready. Go out and, and tell people who have been invited to come. And he sends them out and the people who are invited go, no, we're not coming. So the king's like, go back, invite them. And they go, no, we're, we're still not coming. And in fact, they kill the messengers who come in this parable. And so the king, upset, goes, okay, they're not coming. Let's open the gates, send out other servants to the roads and streets, and anyone who wants to come to this wedding, they can come. And we will clothe them, we will give them garments, we will make sure that they are ready and dressed for the celebration so that they can take part of the celebration of my son's wedding. And so many people come and they arrive and they're all dressed and they've received the generosity of the king. And the king walks into the feast and he notices that there's one person there who did not dress the way that he was to be dressed. He, he did not choose to receive the full generosity of the king. He dishonored this, this invitation. And the king walks up to him and says, friend, how did you get here without the garment? And it's in these instances that we get this context of what this word friend is really trying to highlight in Jesus' interaction with Judas. It's this heartbreak it's a word that's trying to communicate, Judas, how did you miss this? You were so 
close to everything. You were so close to my generosity. You were so close to my graciousness. How did you miss it? Jesus isn't angry. He's he's heartbroken. That the one that was so close missed it and chose to betray him. And Jesus says, do what you came to do. Not out of anger, not out of wrath, but out of heartbreak. So what does this teach us about gentleness? One, it teaches us that gentleness doesn't view the sinner or those who seek to cause us harm as an enemy. Gentleness looks at the sinner with compassion. Jesus looked at Jesus heartbroken and compassionately and chose to respond with gentleness to the one who came to betray him. That's the first thing that we see about gentleness in this story. And the next interaction we see We see it with his captor, one of the men who came to arrest Jesus. In Matthew, we see that, behold, um, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. There's not a whole lot of detail outside of that given in Matthew's account, but the good news is we have three other gospel accounts that are also telling the same story. I want to make sure we're highlighting something here from one of those accounts because it highlights even more about what Jesus is doing and the gentleness of Jesus. See, in the middle of this chaotic moment, one of the disciples of Jesus rises up and strikes one of the captors, cutting off his ear. And yet Jesus' response is to pause In the Gospel of Luke, we see this account. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. The servant's name is Malchus. We we received that note in John's account. It helps humanize the story a little bit more, that this isn't just some faceless person that gets his ears cut off. This is a real person. And Luke wants to highlight for us that Jesus, in the midst of his betrayal, in the midst of his arrest, chooses not to respond with the sword, but instead chooses to respond by healing. He pauses And the man in opposition to him, he heals him. He didn't need to do that. In some sense, you could feel like, oh, he got what he deserved. His ear cut off. He was trying to arrest the Messiah. He was trying to arrest this man who had done nothing wrong. He deserved to get his ear cut off. But Jesus' response is not about what someone deserves. Jesus' response is to make 
someone whole. You see, what gentleness is, it's the act of trying to make someone whole. It's easy in in our day and age to get upset about things. In all days and age, it's easy to get upset about things. And yet Jesus highlights for us a different way of responding to those things and highlights for us the importance of taking every opportunity to try and make someone whole. That's what gentleness is. Gentleness doesn't look to break. It doesn't look to harm or hurt. It looks to seek to heal and make someone whole. And that's what we see in his interaction with his captor, is that he took the opportunity to make this man whole. Finally, we'll we'll see how Jesus engages with his defender. And in this account, we see that one of his disciples, a man named Peter, we find that in John's account, responds to the arrest by doing what some, something that a lot of people would say is noble. He stood up to defend his leader. He stood up to fight. He, he put his life on the line to step in front and try to prevent the injustice of the arrest of an innocent man. And yet Jesus responds to him in a different way. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. When I read this, I go, how? Like, I look at Peter and go, he seems right in his actions in some way. And yet Jesus has something bigger in mind. And he takes the opportunity to correct his defender. And so that's one thing that we note in gentleness, is gentleness doesn't ignore when something is wrong. It's easy to think, oh, if I'm going to be gentle, that means I just don't respond or react to negative things, and I'm quiet, and I kind of get internal. That's not the case. Gentleness recognizes wrongdoing and seeks to correct. And we see even more so in this that gentleness is not a weakness either. I feel that can be a misconception that people have in gentleness is that means if you're gentle, that means you're weak. You're not strong. And what do we see in Jesus' response to the scenario when he's correcting Peter? He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is the strongest person in this scenario. And yet he's choosing to act in a different way. He's choosing to act in gentleness. Why? Because Jesus knows that there's more at stake 
He knows that through his gentleness, there's going to be transformation and there's salvation. We know this because we actually see a response from Peter later on, decades later. We see it in his letter in 1 Peter. We see in 1 Peter 2.23 how gentleness transforms. We see Peter write, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These are the words of a man writing to those who are suffering under persecution, reminding them of the gentleness of Christ that he himself witnessed. Peter went from a being a man who would wield a sword impulsively to encourage those who are suffering to say, remember the gentleness of Christ. Peter was transformed by Christ's gentleness. Jesus understood that his actions had greater meaning than just showing his strength. Again, he says, I could appeal to my father. I could have 12 legions of angels come down and wipe these people out. But I'm not going to do so. Because how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus knows that it is through his gentleness that will come salvation. Jesus knows that in his action, by acting gently, by allowing the soldiers to arrest him, that he's going to be led to his death, which is going to lead to his resurrection, which is going to lead to the payment and the forgiveness of the sins of mankind and the victory over death. That is what Jesus' actions did. I wanted to start not by just getting up here and saying, hey, here's how you can live gently. Here's all these three steps to live gently. No, I wanted to start by sharing you a little bit more about the heart of Christ. And when I, said, when I would go through the saying, gentleness transforms, gentleness corrects, gentleness seeks every opportunity to make someone whole, gentleness views sinner with compassion. All of this is the heart of Christ. And he loves you. The reason I wanted to start with there is because I'm convinced that gentleness doesn't come by just trying to be gentle. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And one of the promises to those who follow Christ is the indwelling Holy Spirit. So I am convinced that the way that we are to live gently is to fall deeper in love with the, the God who has acted gently towards us. I want you to think about what Jesus' actions, how countercultural they are, and how he did it out of love Love for you. He set aside his own well-being for the sake of you. 
He chose gentleness for you. Why don't you just sit in that and think of that? I want you to know how much God loves you. If you don't take anything else away from today, take that. That God loves you enough to act gently to you. If you're here today or you're watching today, that's a sign of God's gentleness. That he's encouraging you to consider, this is my love. I want that restored relationship with you. He loves you. Don't be like Judas. Don't be the one where where Jesus says, how'd you miss it? How'd you miss my gentleness, my goodness and graciousness? You were right there. Christ exemplifies gentleness. And it's through that gentleness that we find salvation. And in doing so, what we see is we see the instructions for us to be gentle as well. So if you want some actions or some applications, we're going to head there. And you ask, well, where, where are we to be gentle? What does that look like? Good news is, the authors of the Bible give us some, some hints to that. The first thing is in correction. Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You see, here, again, gentleness doesn't ignore wrongdoing. Gentleness doesn't ignore sin, but it seeks to correct it. Why? Because what sin is, is sin is, sin is a sign of our brokenness. We don't fix something, we don't make something whole by swinging a sledgehammer at it. Paul's saying, approach those who have fallen in a spirit of gentleness. And you may be saying, well, well, like, what type of sins? I mean, because there's some pretty big ones. Should we be approaching the big ones differently? Paul says, any transgression we correct in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because again, gentleness seeks to make people whole. And in correction, we're seeking to make people whole. We also see that gentleness is important in evangelism and how we interact with people who don't necessarily believe what we believe. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect 
having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter is encouraging individuals that when they're engaging with people who don't believe what, uh, the gospel of Christ, to approach them in gentleness. Just as Jesus interacted with Judas and, and the way Jesus interacted with his captor, he didn't view them as his opposition. He viewed them with compassion. He viewed them as people who needed hope. And so easy for us as Christians, and I know I've fallen into this trap. This is convicting to me to see that those who don't align with what I believe as some sort of opposition or enemy or someone that I need to outsmart or outwit. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is one of gentleness. And that's why Peter is writing, saying, I've seen what Christ has done. I've seen how Christ has lived gently. I've seen the power of that. I've seen the transformation of that in myself. So all of you, Peter writes, when you're giving the hope, do it in gentleness and respect. Lastly, we see in wisdom. James writes in James 3.13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. James here is equating that wisdom comes with gentleness. Almost that you can't have wisdom without it. If you desire to be wise, pursue gentleness. I want to start by closing by addressing a question. What about those who we don't feel deserve gentleness? You may be sitting there and going, yeah, gentleness is good in, in some sense, instances, but, you, but Ben, you don't know who I, I deal with. Or you don't know what this person has done. And you're right, I don't. I don't know everyone's circumstances. I don't know who you engage or interact with. And you may be right, maybe the, the person you're thinking of deserves your anger. But I'd ask you to consider this. When has the gospel ever been about what someone has deserved? It never has been. The gospel is the message of a God who looks at, at a people who have betrayed, who have turned away, who have outright abandoned and disgraced him. And he says, I'm not going to give them what they deserve. 
but I am going to take every action to make that individual whole. That's what the gospel is. And so, yes, you may be looking at some of these interactions. You, you don't know what they've done, Ben. You're right, I don't. But maybe, maybe your interaction, if your choice to act gently in response to that individual, maybe that action is a way that God is choosing to invite that person into relationship with him and to restore that relationship. I said gentleness wasn't weakness. And that choice, the act to relent, to let go of your anger, to act gently, takes an extraordinary amount of strength. I know it's tough. But remember what Christ has done for you. And remember the promises of Christ. In Matthew 5, we see the Beatitudes. In one of them, it says, Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The thing about gentleness is it doesn't just keep others whole. It seeks to keep us whole as well. I think about my son Arlo when he's on the couch yanking on his mom's hair and we're telling Arlo we've got to be gentle. We're telling him to be gentle so his mom isn't going, ow. But we've also seen that in his pulling and his enthusiasm and his uncoordination, it often leads to him falling over, sometimes hitting his head on the table. And so there's often filled with lots of tears because of the lack of his own gentleness. What we see in the promises of Christ is Christ is also saying, your gentleness is seeking to make them whole, but I am seeking to make you whole through your gentleness. So today, wherever you're at, maybe you've never considered before a relationship with Christ. Or maybe you've been on a long journey. Wherever you're at in this journey with Christ, today I would invite you to come back to the open arms of the one who has given you gentleness. The one who says, I want to see you be made whole. And live gently today. Because Christ stands there in his gentleness, saying, come be made whole. Let's pray. Father, I, I know for me it's, it's hard sometimes to be gentle. It's hard to let us set aside my own anger. I know there's, there's part of me that says, I don't want to. And yet you've called us to. And I, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit starts to soften the hearts of us all and recognize 
that your desire is to build us up, to make us whole, and to have us go out and build out, build up others. Lord, help us grow. Help us confess of our sins. Help us confess of the anger that we've held on to. And let us go live gently. Let the world see what gentleness can do through us. We ask this in your name. Amen.